Well, hello again. If you have a Bible and you're one of those you'd like to follow along with where we're going to be at this morning, we're going to be diving into 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be spending the most of our time in chapters 11 and 12, but then we're going to rush through the ending of 2 Samuel. We're just going to finish out the book this morning as we're in our series looking at how the entire story of the Bible is one chronological big story and how it all pieces together leading up to Jesus and leading up to where you and I are here today worshiping. Jesus. And so as you turn there, I want to go ahead and ask you have, you, have you been watching those shows like on Disney Plus, like The Mandalorian, The Falcon Winter Soldier, Loki and all that? I know those are big deals right now. Uh, me and my wife, we love those shows and we, we've been watching this show Loki. We haven't finished it yet. I know it's over, but, but we watched an episode the other day and there was something that was said in the episode that I was just shocked. I was like, that is so incredibly true. The statement was, that the main character, Loki, he made the statement. He said that those who are bad are never as bad as they really seem. And that those who are seen as good are never as good as they seem. And I looked at that and I was like, wow, what a true statement for the way we are as human beings. That we're never as bad as we like to think we are. And we're never as good as we like to think we are. But in reality, we're all in this kind of gray area where we're both good and bad in a, in a lot of different ways. And, and here's the honest truth. We don't like that. We like those who are bad to be so indisputably bad that there's never any question that they might have some nugget of goodness about them. And we want those who are good, our heroes, to never make a mistake, to never fall short, to never stumble and do something that would be considered bad. And as soon as one of our heroes does something bad, then it's as if they're this heinous villain, right? Like you, you've all seen those things on social media where someone does something bad and everyone has to just cry out, crucify, crucify, as if they've never done anything bad themselves, Right? That's the culture we live in. It's this disappointing fact that we forget that people are complicated. That people have both good and bad qualities about themselves. And that is certainly true of the people of the Bible. Certainly of King David. Last week, we kind of introduced King David and he looked like this shining beacon of hope. And we can even make the argument, based on what we've seen so far in Scripture, how everything has been leading up to David. How David is this pinnacle of hope for the people. I mean, we've seen so far in Scripture how God has this commitment, this promise that he wants to confront evil. That he's going to send someone who's going to be his hero, his warrior, who's going to defeat evil. Who's going to subdue the nations, who's going to unite God's people and bring in God's blessing to the world. And so far in the story, we've seen seen David do these things. We've seen him defeat like David and Goliath, that famous story. He defeated this giant that no one else can defeat. We see him subdue the enemy nations. We've seen him unite Israel. We're even seeing what we're going to partially see even today, that other nations are coming to worship this God. It looks like everything's been leading up to David. And if we didn't know of what's coming later on in the story of Jesus, we would look at it and think, this must be the one that God is going to use to fix the world. But David is not that man. He's complicated. He's messed up. He's broken. He does a heinous act, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And it's, it's jaw-dropping. It stuns us when we think about who this David is, how he's a man after God's own heart, and how he's led Israel into a deeper worship of God after they've been rebelling for so long. 
and we find that he messes up. See, our story picks up on a, a warm spring day. It's the time of the year when Israel goes off to war to extend their empire, their, their little kingdom that David has built up. And so all the able-bodied men go out to war. But where is David? Well, the story tells us that David, after years and years of going and leading his men into battle, one day gets tired. He gets lazy. He's like, let other people do that. That's, I don't care about that. And that should be a warning to us because remember, the people wanted a king who was going to fight their battles. But now we get to a point where David is like, oh, just, I'm not feeling it. I just want to stay on the couch you know, work on my dad bod, just chill out, you know. And it's in this setting that this tragic news happens. It's in verse 2 of chapter 11. And the story tells us that it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. This woman is named Bathsheba. Now, here's a fun little fact. She's the daughter of a man that David has known for decades. A man who has sacrificed so much to fight beside David. And so you can imagine David has known Bathsheba for a very long time. He's watched her grow up. And then he sees her in this intimate moment. You see, she has stayed home, uh, or she's home, uh, cleaning herself off, and she's on the roof thinking, no one will be able to see me, but David's got this palace, and he can see everyone in his kingdom. And he's already sent all the able-bodied men out to war, and it's just him and the women and children, and he looks and he starts to lust after her. And the story goes on in chapter 11, verse 4, that says, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Prior to this event, we've seen David act with tremendous integrity, and now we're seeing that he has no integrity in this moment. And that's shocking because we want our leaders to lead with integrity, but the truth of the matter is that we can't lead others with integrity if we cannot lead ourselves with integrity in our privacy. And here's David. He's, he's seen something he wants, and so he's called for her. He's objectified this woman. See, the, the language here has Bathsheba always as the object of David's actions. He, he sees her. He inquires about her. He sins for her. And then he sleeps with her. I'm not saying that she's innocent in the matter because she's guilty because she's married. But the language wants us to understand that this is an incredibly heinous act for David. Because he's the one that everything's been pointing to as someone of hope for his people. And he's done this terrible act. And he thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks, oh, that was easy. You know, I've got another notch on my bedpost. He sends her away. He's happy with himself. But then, like a soap opera, when two people do something terrible, there's a plot twist. Because we're told in verse 5 that it says, the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. See, now the matter is worse. David thought, hey, I'll just do this little thing over here. No one will know about it to be perfectly fine. You know, I've, I've cleared out my internet browser. I've hidden the bottles on the shelf. I, I erased those messages. No one knows about it. I'm perfectly fine. That's what he thinks he's done. But he finds out the matter's not close. Finds out that there's a problem. Now he has to deal with this because Bathsheba's married. And David's had an affair. 
So David tries to cover up. He starts out by calling for Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to come from the battlefield. And Uriah, Uriah, we're told, is a Hittite, which is an important fact, right? He's not an Israelite. But he is someone who has come to be part of the Israelite people. He is someone who has come to worship Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the God of Israel. And this should be a sign that it looks like the promises of Abraham happening because remember God wants his people to be a blessing upon all the nations, for all the nations to come and be a part of his family. And we've seen that with David. But now here's Uriah the Hittite who has come to worship this God and follow David. He's fighting for David. Meanwhile, David was sleeping with his wife. And so David tries to act friendly towards Uriah. He, he's asking, hey, how's the battle going? How are things going? And then he throws a party and he tries to send Uriah back home to his wife, hoping that maybe he'll find a way to cover up the whole thing and, and, and make this belief that maybe that's Uriah's child. But, but while David didn't have integrity, Uriah did. And he doesn't go home to his wife. In fact, he sleeps at at the door of David's palace, right outside, throws a little cot and sleeping mattress and sleeps there. And when David hears about it in the morning, he asks Uriah, he's like, what's going on? Why didn't you go home back to your wife, to your family, to enjoy time together? You haven't seen her in weeks and months, maybe. Why didn't you go back? Here's what Uriah says. He says in verse 11, he says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, who's the general, Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. He's kind of saying, everybody is where they're supposed to be. They're out fighting for you, David. They're out extending your kingdom, your little empire that you're building. Which is kind of a little sly in some ways of, but David, you're not with us, right? David is neglecting where he's supposed to be. He goes on to say this. He says, shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He's like, I'm out there fighting, it seems, for your right to sleep with my wife. Now, I don't know if Uriah knew. The text doesn't tell us. He probably didn't know. But you can see how this would kind of hurt David in a lot of ways. In his own way, he's having to face his responsibility that he's neglected his responsibility and he's, inter- he's allowed this doorway to open up for sin. And so he tries to, again the next night. He gets Uriah really drunk thinking if he's really drunk, then his morals and his integrity will be thrown out the window. He'll go home and it'll be, the matter will be all taken care of. And he gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah does the same thing the next night. He sleeps at the, the door of the palace. And so David comes up with a third plan, and it's a a terrible plan. Things just get worse and worse. And it tells us in verse 14, it says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote this. It's shocking. Here's what the letter says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. All Uriah has ever wanted to do was serve this king, serve God, And the man he looked up to has taken advantage of what belonged to him, has taken everything from him. And now he sends Uriah back to the the battlefield carrying a letter for his own assassination. And after this, after Uriah's dead, uh, David marries Bathsheba. You know, he's like, everything's covered up. I've covered all my bases. I've, I've hidden all the tracks. But chapter 11 ends with a very chilling statement. 
It says in verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. My friends, we can hide our sins from others, but we can never hide them from God. See, God sees everything about who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He sees it all, and we can't hide from God. And because God loves David, we have to understand that this is a God who has to deal with this situation. This is a God who fights for the lowly, for the weakened, for the downtrodden. And here David, he's been fighting for David so far in the story, but now David has turned and made himself an enemy. And so God's got to do something about this. And so he sends Nathan, this prophet during the time, to go talk to David. And Nathan and David are big friends. And so Nathan tells this story. He's like, hey, David, I've got this problem. There's this guy I'm dealing with. He's this rich guy, and he's stolen from the poor. And David gets livid about this. He's like, that is unacceptable. This guy needs to be punished. And then David looks at him and says, I'm talking about you. He says to him in in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. See, David has constantly been lavished with blessings from God. Just like us, where God constantly gives blessings after blessings. But David has done exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Where they look at all the blessings that God has given them, And they thought, I deserve more. That's what David did. That's where all of us do when we sin. We turn a blind eye to all the many blessings that God has given us, and then we think, I deserve more. I deserve to do this, and we will justify it. And that's what David has done. And God is calling him out on it. And God goes on to say in verse 9, he says, Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This right here kind of shows us that, that God hurts for those who have experienced injustice. That God, he's hurting for that. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the injustice in this world. But we're looking at a God who's a fighter, a God who wants to confront evil, who wants to bring his blessing back in the world, restore this world back to the way it was. So therefore, God is hurt by injustice, and therefore he's hurt when when his people create it. And that's what David has done. Knowing that God wants to bring goodness back in the world, he has instead chosen evil in this moment. Now, remember Saul when he was king, And God confronted him about his mistakes. His mistakes were not nearly as bad as David's. But remember, Saul couldn't look his mistakes in the eye. He always had an excuse. It was always someone else's fault. He always had something at the ready uh, to make it seem like he was an innocent man or he was justified in what he did or he wasn't as bad as he he says he was and things like that. That was Saul. So we're looking at David and we're like, David, how are you going to respond when the fingers point at you? When someone says, you are the man. When someone says, you have done this wrong. Here's how David responds. It's it's a sign that he really is a man after God's own heart, even though he messes up. It's in verse 13 of chapter 12. He says, I have sinned against Yahweh. He doesn't give an excuse. He doesn't play it off. He doesn't do that narcissism thing, you know, where he tries to make it about him or anything. He's just open and honest. He's like, you're right. I've messed up. 
I hurt myself, I hurt others, and I've hurt my relationship with God. He's showing tremendous amount of humility. Ask yourselves, would that be you if you had to look God in the eye and him to say, here's the things you've done wrong? Would that be you if a friend or family member or or coworker was to point to you and say, you've done something wrong, would you have that humility to be like, you're right, I did. I'm sorry. This is what David does. It's a sign that even when he messes up, he is still a man after God's own heart. He's humble. He has this uh, intentionality about his relationship with God even when he messes up. And because he has this humility before God in the face of his errors, in the face of what he's done, here's what God does and how God responds. It's in verse 13 where Nathan assures David. He says, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. Now that single statement right there tells us really two powerful truths I really want to focus on. The first one is that humble repentance before God is the catalyst for receiving God's forgiveness. David messed up. He had this relationship with God and he did what he knew he shouldn't have done and it broke things. But because he was humble, he got to experience God's forgiveness. And that shows us that God is always ready to forgive us of any wrongdoing when we have the humility to say, God, I've messed up and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against others. There is a God who is ready to give us forgiveness when we have that humility. The second thing, this statement that God tells David that we can learn from this, the second one is that God's forgiveness doesn't erase God's desire to discipline us in love. See, God loves David, but David did a bad thing. And he needs to face the consequences. And we need to be clear on the differences between punishment and discipline. Here in this moment, David is disciplining, or God is disciplining David because he loves David. And he doesn't want David to make this mistake again. And he wants to mold David in this experience. It's like a parent. A good parent disciplines their kids when they do wrong so that they won't make that same mistake again, and so they will grow up into a bright young man or woman, right? That's what parents do. And that's what God is going to do for David in this moment, and it's painful. No one likes discipline, especially the person who's having to enforce it. But out of the act, fruit comes to bear. Out of the act, when God does it, we see more of who God is. And so the discipline starts immediately. David loses the child from the affair. And then he loses all integrity with his family, his friends, his own kingdom. Everything starts to fall apart and spiral out of control because of this. It starts off with his kids. You see, he's got these kids, uh, a son named Amnon, a daughter named Tamar, and his kids sleep together. And David's response, I want to brush it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. He doesn't deal with it. And he's got another son named Absalom who doesn't like this. So Absalom goes and kills his brother Amnon for this. And David doesn't do anything about it. He pretends like it never happened as his kids are literally destroying each other's lives. And they won't listen to him anyways because he's lost all integrity with them. And from this, though, things continue to spiral out of control. You see, Absalom, after he stepped in and done what his father is supposed to do, he continues it. He goes forward. He, he goes outside the king's palace, and he starts to tell people that David doesn't care about you, and we can see the evidence of it based on how he's treated Bathsheba. 
And he gathers up support from himself. And, and the text tells us in chapter 15 now that by doing this, Absalom stalled the hearts of the men of Israel. He gets people to choose him, to, to rally behind him. So he names himself king and he rallies up his men to, to dethrone his own father. And David hears about this in time enough to flee into the wilderness. Last week we talked about how he was fleeing from Saul. And then he was an innocent man, but now... Now he's a guilty man on the run. And he heads out and in time he builds up his own army and he goes war with his own son. But he tells his men not to, when they capture Absalom, not to kill him. They're like, that's my son, don't hurt him, but just bring me back the kingdom. But like I said, he's lost all integrity. He's lost the respect of his men. And so when they win the battle and they capture Absalom, they massacre him. And when they tell David, saying, hey, we won your throne, and by the way, we chopped your son up into pieces, here's how David replies in chapter 18. It says, the king was deeply moved and wept, went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Right there, we get to see a little bit of the David that we love, the one who weeps over his enemies. But in this moment, as we come to the end of 2 Samuel, we see David, he's back on the throne, but he's an old man. And he's holding the crumbled pieces of his life together. The blood is on his hands because of how his mistakes have caused all of this damage. He took the goodness that God had given him, and because of his sin, he destroyed it. And that, see, that's what sin does. Sin destroys the goodness that God wants to bring into our lives. And for David, that's what he experienced. And he's got this relationship with God that, that's on the ropes, that he's hurt. But in this, we've still seen God to be adamant about wanting to be intimate with David. That while David messed up, God had not given up on him. That God still offered him forgiveness when David had the humility to say, God, I messed up. I need you. I am the sinner. And God has given forgiveness. Here's this God who does not give up. Who looks at this messed up, broken world and he looks at it and he says, mine. That's the God we worship. The God who's not turned away by our evil, by our wickedness, by the mistakes we made, even the mistakes you made last night that you think, man, if anybody knew what I did last night, they would not want me in the room. Even those mistakes, God looks at and he says, I still want you. That's the God we worship. And in this encounter that David has is he's understanding even at the end of his life that God is still faithful to him, that God has still given him forgiveness, that God has not left the room but still wants to be in his life. It tells us something very powerful about who God is. Not just that he's a God of mercy and grace, but it tells us something, a broader message, one I think is very important for us to understand today and all the perils and all the things we see. It's that God's plan God's plan of fixing the world, of restoring it, of bringing lost people back into him. God's plan is damaged by sin, but it is not defeated by our sin. God's plan is damaged by our sin. The goodness that God wants to give us, we can easily damage it. We can tear it apart. We can ruin it by our decisions, by our sin. But our sin does not defeat God. 
You see, when we come to the New Testament, when we come to a guy named Jesus, we're told in the book of Romans that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. This is God in the flesh who became sin on our behalf so that he could die for us. Because it says, while we are still his enemies, Christ died for us while we are still his enemies. So that we could have freedom from sin. So that those things that make us look like David could be done away with. Where God said, let's put this in the past. And that's an important message that we need to understand because we look at our world and we see a lot of failure. We see a lot of brokenness. We see a lot of pain. And we need to understand that while these things are present, they do not defeat the God who's already promised us in the end a new creation, a new beginning, one where he is on the throne and he's fixing us and he's fixing this world. That this God hasn't given up on this mission. That while we might have the capacity of ruining our lives, we can't ruin the love he has for us. There's no point where his love runs out, where his forgiveness runs out, where his grace and mercy runs out for us. When we have the humility to say, God, I messed up. My life's a mess and I need your help. He's a God who always comes running in that but we must be bold enough and confident enough to be able to address the pain and the mistakes and the failures. And that's adamantly important for us as a church because we want to be a church for those who have given up on church. And here's the thing. No one gives up on church because of Jesus. They give up on church because of the things that the church does, because of what pastors do or leaders do or other Christians do. And so hear me. I understand that maybe some of you have come to this church because you were hurt at somewhere else. Or maybe you're someone who you've never saw the importance of church. You're like, this doesn't matter because you've looked around and you've seen the scandals. You've seen the reports. You've been hurt by a pastor or a leader before. And so hear me as a young pastor who has his fair share of hurting others as well. Because I'm a broken human being too. Please hear me on behalf of for you who have been hurting, I am sorry for the way you've been treated in other places. And I'm sorry for whatever made you give up on church or made you think that God didn't love you or you're, you're doubting God because of what some Christian did for you. I'm sorry for that. But we worship a God who is better than us, who's better than David. And we are worshiping someone who is better than David. We worship Jesus the Christ. Because all of scripture after David's failure starts pointing ahead, says we need a king who is like David and having a heart after God, but who is better than David. And we come to the New Testament and surprise, surprise, we find out it's Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, who is the king of all kings, who loves us, who dies for us, who rose again to give us new life, who says that we can put away the past that we have, and maybe that's the encouragement you need today. Because you've made your mistakes. You feel like, you know, I'm like David in this story. I've made some mistakes and I've gone away with it. Maybe that's you this morning. And I want you to understand that there is a God of forgiveness. 
There's a God of mercy who's waiting to give you his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness when you ask for it, when you are willing to say, God, I am a sinner, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe that he's king of the universe and I want to follow him. That there's a God, when we come to him in that humility, he's ready to forgive us. And there's freedom in that because maybe, maybe this morning you've already had that conversation with God but you're a Christian and you've made that mistake and you keep beating yourself up over it over and over and over again of that thing in your past that you regret, the thing that you can't let go. I, I know how that feels. So take comfort knowing that there's a God who says that that thing is forgiven. That thing that you can't let go. That thing that's the black mark on your record where God says it's forgiven. It's forgiven. Because you're his. That's a wonderful thing for us. That's part of what baptism is about, if you think about it. We baptize people to give a statement to say, hey, the past is done. Jesus is now the future and the present as we follow him. And maybe this morning that's what you need. You need the reminder of hope when when life seems hard that there is a God who has not given up on you. That while you have your own stories of being like David, there is a God who still says you are his when you come and surrender him. So maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe this morning you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. May this morning be a change for that. May this morning be the time when you walk out and you're like, you know what, I came in here as someone who was broken, someone who was trying to hide my pain, my bitterness, my my agony. Because of the things I'm carrying. But you walked out of here free. The burdens and the chains gone because you surrendered your life to Jesus. A new beginning came. If so, in the minute we're going to have elders in the back of the room. At every service we have this. So if you need to talk to someone, make that today. During the song that we'll be singing, make that an opportunity to go and talk to one of them. If you need to talk to me, I'll be over there. This will be an opportunity for you to surrender your life. And maybe... For some of you, that's not the situation. You've already done that. You've already given your life to Jesus, but you've made a mistake since you became a Christian, but you're struggling with it. It's eating you up inside. You can't get over this failure. Let me tell you, we're all broken people. Like we say all the time here at the church, we are a family of imperfect people following a perfect God. None of us are pretending to have our lives all together, but we're, we're pointing to the one who's fixing us. And so maybe that's what you need as you've been beating yourself up over day after day after day over the mistake you made, know that this morning there's a God who has a better judgment, who looks at you and says, that is forgiven too, that you are still his and that he's not given up on you. And he still wants to use you to love God and love people. Maybe the encouragement you need to hear today is from an elder as well. And if that's the case, go and talk to someone because I know how painful that is to carry that weight. Or maybe for some of you, and I imagine there's a lot of you, you need to get baptized. You, you've done the whole thing. You, you've said the prayer and all that. You've come to surrender to Jesus. But you've never publicly made that profession of faith. And I know that's scary, but let me tell you, it's like wearing a wedding ring. The water doesn't save you, but it is a testimony saying, you know what, in front of a crowd of witnesses, I want everyone to know that I'm done with the sin of my past because Jesus says it's done. He's given me freedom from this. He says I don't have to go to that. He's given me freedom. That is no longer having power over my life, and I am now one who is 
in a new beginning with Jesus. And that's what we do in baptism. We celebrate someone who's making that declaration that their old life is done, and from here on out, they're following Jesus as their king. And maybe that needs to be you, because you've never been baptized. Let me tell you, friends, that there is hope in this message that we see in David. There is hope at the graveside, at the hospital bed, when you're at home and you're holding the papers of a divorce. There is hope in a God who is given forgiveness and love, who doesn't give up on us, who our sin might damage the goodness he wants to bring into our lives, but it does not defeat our God who fights for us. And there's hope in that. So rest assured in that, that this is the Jesus that we worship. Won't you pray with me? Father, I, I have to admit in my own life, I am like David. I sin. And I, I, know, I know it is rebellion against you. And, I, and I've, I'm a pastor and I still find myself doing this. And I'm broken. I am the man. But you are greater. And you, you love us still. You still call us yours. You give us second chances and third chances and fourth chances. It never ends because you never give up on us. And Father, I am so grateful that while my sin might damage some of the goodness you want to bring into my life, you are not defeated by sin. Not by my sin, not by anyone's sin here, not by anyone's sin who's ever lived, Father. And I take comfort in knowing that in David's actions, and how heinous they were that you didn't give up on him, that you still sought to have an intimate relationship with him. And Father, I have not done anything as heinous as David, but I take comfort in knowing that therefore, if you can still love David, that you can therefore still love me. And that includes the people in this room. Father, I ask that if there are those in this room this morning who have not surrendered their lives to you, they're still holding on to their sin, they're still holding on to a dead way of life, Father, that this morning that you would move in their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them, that this would be the morning that they would surrender their life to you, that this would be the morning of a new beginning, whether they, this is a time where they've never surrendered to you or maybe this is a time where they have surrendered to you, but they've fallen, they've backslid, they, they made mistakes. May this be a morning where they take comfort knowing that you haven't given up on them, that you pick us up, you dust us off, and that you send us back out there to continue as part of your mission of rescuing this world, of fixing this world, Father. Thank you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, Father. As we come humbly now before you, say, oh, come, Father. Come be in our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen.